0: So take any help, advice that you can, and never be scared to email or pick up the phone if someone can help you in some way. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to all learn from each other.
1: Hey, everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Catherine McCord, to our show today. Catherine is the CEO and founder of One Potato, an organic, family-friendly meal delivery service. Throughout the 90s, Catherine was considered one of the world's top supermodels. She posed for the cover of Vogue, walked the runway for Donna Karan and Calvin Klein, co-hosted Loveline, and appeared in movies that included Matt Damon, The Rock, and Jennifer Aniston. But then September 11th happened in 2001. Catherine was living in New York City, and her perspective on life instantly changed. Although her career was soaring, she realized life was too short and wanted to follow her passion around food. After graduating from culinary school, Catherine had her first son who was experiencing health issues from a sensitive stomach. Although she could cook a four-star meal, she had no idea how to cook for a child, and this was something she realized was far too common for mothers. She began playing around with different recipes and decided to start her blog, Weelicious.com, to not only build community as a new mother, but also to share her recipe ideas. Fast forward to today, Weelicious has grown into a widely popular, healthy lifestyle brand three cookbooks, and her most recent venture, One Potato, the first organic home meal delivery kit, which has grown over 220% in the past year. We'll chat with Catherine about how she pivoted her career from modeling to becoming a serial entrepreneur, the importance of building a community when launching your brand or company, and how she manages building her empire while also being a mother to three young kids. Welcome to the show, Catherine.
0: I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, I'm excited that you're here. I'm a big fan of Weelicious and all your work. I'm always looking for healthy meals and finding quick and convenient ways to do it. So I can't wait to dig more into your story today. So on the podcast, we always love to start from the beginning. I know you grew up in Kentucky and you've always been fascinated with food and food culture since you were pretty young. So I'd love to hear more about your childhood and what your life was like growing up.
0: I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and very much a yin-yang. My grandparents were into farming, growing their own food. We went to Pick Farms in Indiana. And so I had this fresh food, spending time with my grandfather, like shucking sugar snap peas. And then on the other side was drive through McDonald's, KFC, very much tab, saccharin tablets, snack well, chocolate cookies, like eat the whole package, you're yeah. not gonna gain any weight. I mean it was just like this total opposite. But I really absorbed the fresh food part of it. I was fascinated. I started collecting cookbooks when I was nine years old and getting bon appetit and gourmet. So I've just always been really fascinated with food and why people eat the way they do. And even for me, like we were five o'clock at the dinner table every single night. And while that might've annoyed me when I was a kid at different times, I have just those deep, deep memories of family and being together and connecting through food.
1: I love that. It's so beautiful. It's funny that you say that because even as a kid, I would find it so frustrating every night we had to be together. But growing up in retrospect, it's like the best thing you can do for your children and family. So it's great to see how you've now incorporated that in your life today, which we'll go into in a little bit. But I know even growing up, you were fascinated by food. And it's interesting, the dichotomy you talked about, the fast food and even your grandparents working with them on their farm, you also had a dichotomy in just your life in high school. I know you got into modeling and you were traveling all over the world, but you also were, I believe, a middle school or high school kid still being in Louisville. So I'm curious, how was your life growing up when you were kind of living between both worlds of high fashion, but also still living in the South?
0: There were times that it was amazing, there were times that it was very confusing. I mean, I did feel like I was living two lives. I started modeling when I was really 13. I my first modeling contest was called the Look of the Year, which was owned by Elite and it was nationally televised on ABC when I had just turned 14 years old and I missed the first month of my freshman year of high school to be in Japan with all these young girls and I was the youngest girl in the contest from all over the world. So It was this sort of like, I would go model in New York and then come back to high school and model in Paris and then come back. So the back and forth, I knew that it was like I was getting to see the world and it was interesting then going back to where the kids were just being kids all the time. So I really appreciate the experience, but at the time, I think there were definite challenges to it.
1: Yeah. And I'm all about mindset and how we all deal with challenges because now you're a serial entrepreneur. There's challenges I'm sure that spring up every single day. At that younger age, how are you coping with, you know, I'm sure it was quite lonely. I'm sure it was tough for you. Did you lean into family or what did you learn in that tough period of your life, even though on the face of it, it was incredibly glamorous?
0: That's the funny part. When I was younger, I was like, I have this. I have got this. I don't need anybody. I can go live in New York. And I was 15 years old, like dropped in the middle of New York City. And there was no like on your phone how to get anywhere. I had to figure out, I would sit there with a map showing up at the wrong place at the wrong time all the time. So I was super confident through high school, wherever it was, living, acclimating, And then my big break came when Calvin Klein and Patrick de Marchelier found me when I was 17 years old. And I ended up then going and doing all the runway shows and being on the cover of Glamour and like all of this happened to me. And I was doing runway in Paris and Milan and London. And I basically had a mini breakdown and my mom ended up starting traveling with me. Because when you're modeling, I don't think that the one thing people don't ever realize is it's two days, like you're two days here, two days there on different jobs. So the gift is you're able to meet new people and acclimate and really connect with people. But it is at that same time, two days is never enough to really get to know anyone. So it's made me very adaptable and traveling. Like I love that part of it. But also I realized how much more I needed my mom and my dad. And and I was really lucky because my parents have always just had, I mean, I, I still to this day talk to my parents one to two times a day. So, you know, we're very connected and they've been such a support system for me.
1: That's so beautiful. And I know you've also mentioned growing up, I believe it was your father who really gave you the mentality of saving and your money mindset. And I know from a very young age, you were all about looking at modeling as a business and saved money quite a bit. So I'd love to hear your perspective around money because throughout your career, you've really set yourself up by your savings to take on these larger leaps with your other businesses.
0: My parents made me always get straight A's through high school because modeling was a privilege it was like they were allowing me to go so i needed to keep up my grades and my dad very much was like when i graduated from high school and i got a few partial college scholarships and he had said look you can go model and take that time to travel the world and really make money and save it so that you can then when you're ready and really know what you want to do with your life you have the opportunity to go do it or you can go to college and that'll be your path And so I saved everything. I never had more than what I absolutely needed in this little account. And then everything else was put into 401s and all kinds of different savings accounts. So it has, from that point of view, been like a real gift.
1: And I wish in our life now, it should be required that everybody takes a gap year before going to college because you don't know what you want to do with your life, right?
0: (laughs) I always say that. I'm like, oh my God, if every kid could just go travel or get a job. Even when I went to culinary school, I'm friends with a lot of chefs and they were always like, just go get a job in a kitchen for a year. You don't need to go to culinary school. You're going to really learn through the experience of being in a working kitchen. But I wanted to learn every aspect of cooking and the history. And so that was my path.
1: Yeah. And you know, I want to actually get into that because I know Your career was soaring, right? You were on all these top magazines on the front cover. And I know you ultimately didn't decide to go to college and really pursue modeling because of all these opportunities, but you always had an interest for food. And I know at some point, a little bit later in your career, as you mentioned, you were moonlighting and cooking at night. So I'm curious, at what point did you realize, I want to move outside of the spotlight and really focus on my love for food and even give culinary school a shot?
0: So I had been taking journalism classes, and I always loved class and school for whatever reason. Even today, I love any kind of education that I can wrap myself up in. And I was hosting TV shows and modeling, and I had always just been fascinated with going to culinary school. And so actually on 9-11, I was living in New York City, blocks from the World Trade Center, and I was supposed to go see the Institute of Culinary Education that day, and when we were there, when The towers came down. I was outside when I saw the plane go through the first one, I or the second one, I should say. And it was one of the most challenging, obviously, days of my life. And that was the moment where I was like, I'm going to go follow my dream, because if you don't seize it now, what is life worth? And within several months, I had enrolled. So I worked during the day, and I went to culinary school at night, and it was the greatest thrill. It was meeting new people that we all were so like-minded. There were 13 girls and one boy and all of us were like, we would even finish culinary school and go into a restaurant. We were just totally immersed in it. And it was an incredible experience.
1: Wow. And it's awesome to see that you still had your full-time job kind of during the day, and then you were going to school and hustling at night. And it just shows when you have a big passion for something, you don't feel burnt out. You're just energized, right? To work all the time, which is clearly how you were living your life in those few years. I say that for
0: any entrepreneur, like if you are so passionate about what you do, your wheel is always turning for it.
1: That's true. And it feels like you're always working, but it's not in a bad way. Your mind is just always thinking about different things on whatever projects you're working on. Absolutely. You mentioned there was 13 women in culinary school and one guy. And I know you spent some time shortly after that working as a chef in a few prominent restaurants. You know, I've had a few guests who have been on this podcast who worked at high-end restaurants. And I've just learned that being a woman in that situation is very rare. There's not a lot of role models and women at that time, especially who were in the kitchen. So when you were kind of taking those internships or jobs, how was your experience? Because I know it's definitely quite the grind.
0: Look, especially at that time, there weren't as many women as there are in cooking today, which I applaud and I'm so excited by. And even in culinary school, by the way, some of the women that I was in culinary school with have gone on to have incredible careers in cooking. It was brutal. It was brutal. I mean, you're given the worst of the jobs, and especially because I was entering ground level. So it's a tough career. There is no doubt. It's abusive in many ways, from the hours to standing on your feet all day. But it's also phenomenal and I'm glad that I didn't give up. The only difference was I realized early on that I didn't want a restaurant job. I knew that I wanted to be in cooking but I wasn't exactly sure where I would land.
1: You know, I'd love to dig into that a little bit because no, know you got pregnant around 33 and you had a hectic schedule going between New York and L.A. So how are you thinking about your career at the time and your next steps? Because that's really when you started having fun with your blog or even the blog idea came to mind with Weelicious. So I love to just kind of hear what your life looked like at the time and how you thought about your next steps.
0: Well, I mean, look, I definitely have an entrepreneur brain. I'm always thinking of what's the next cool, fun thing? What can I create? What can I do? I had started a business with another friend, like a bar company, like protein bars that were just clean ingredients and just organic and amazing. But also, I realized this wasn't going to be something that we would be able to sustain. And truthfully, when I had my son, it was so exciting having a baby and going through pregnancy, but I didn't know what I was going to do. I really didn't. I mean, I knew that I loved cooking and I loved culinary school and working in restaurants, but it wasn't going to work for my life being a new mom. And so when I had Kenya, my first child... I've always shopped at the farmer's market every Sunday for now, well over 20 years. And that's really where it started when I started feeding him. And I was making all these homemade baby food purees and trying to figure out what was safe and what isn't. Because when you have a new baby, you're like, oh my God, I know how to cook a four-star meal and I have no idea what to feed you, this like tiny human. And so that was really the way that Wheelicious was born was it was just a little blog helping other moms and Facebook and chat rooms. I mean, it was just really connecting with like minded people through the education that I had received and practical experience. And it really just grew from there.
1: I feel like you do a really good job. If you're not aware of something, you ask for help or you reach out to people, right? And I think that's such an important skill for any successful entrepreneur. Cause I think a lot of people listening, they're very intimidated about taking the next step because they are like, I'm not experienced in starting a blog or who am I to start something? So I'd love to hear the way you thought about it and if you reached out to anyone at the time just to even create a blog, because when you started, it wasn't as common as it is today.
0: Well, the best advice I have probably ever been given, because I at that time too could be like, oh, I don't want to ask some. And I don't want to bother them. And da, da, da. the best advice is don't be scared to ask your mother's next door's boyfriend's uncle, any connection to anything that you need. People especially always want to give back. And so take any help, advice that you can, and never be scared to email or pick up the phone if someone can help you in some way, because we're all, at the end of the day, we're trying to all learn from each other.
1: Yeah. And I think that's really critical. And I'm glad you're bringing that up because it's a common theme in all of our interviews. And I hope it gives women more comfort to ask for help because people are willing to give you 10 minutes or 15 minutes, especially if you're specific with your ask. If it's pretty general, I feel like it's tough for somebody to help. But if you're very specific about what that is, you'd be surprised how many people are willing to take the time to walk you through something or connect you with someone who can. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And, you know, when you started WeLicious, I know, was a creative outlet for you. You were starting these blogs, you know, you were inspired by your firstborn and what you were cooking for them. But at what point did you realize, wow, something's here. There could be more potential in this passion project that you were starting?
0: Well, off of the opposite. I think that to your point earlier that I had saved for so many years. And so for the first 2 years of Weelicious, I mean, it was so much passion. And also, I think I'd take it back to when you have a baby. There used to be so much more community, like you were surrounded by your friends and family. And when you become a mom, it's all of a sudden you are isolated. You're home, you're home with this new baby that you're trying to give, give, give to 24-7. So what ended up happening to me, it was like my computer became my best friend because I was able to connect with all of these women all over the world. And you felt like you weren't alone. And so for the first two years, I didn't take any ad sales. I didn't do anything. I really treated it much more as a community than I did any kind of entrepreneurship. It really wasn't until I started writing my first cookbook that I was like, oh, this is a full-on business. And that's when I really took it to the next level.
1: And did you always have thoughts around wanting to write a cookbook? I know you're mentioning you loved food, but you never really were sure about how you were going to get into the world of food and what you were going to do. So what sparked in your mind that you're like, oh, I actually want to do this cookbook or that's the right next step for me?
0: I always knew. I mean, like full dream was to write a cookbook. That was like, that to me at that point was definitely the pinnacle. But Again, I was like, I had never written a cookbook. I didn't really know where to start. And I also had hit this point with Wheelicious at about two and a half years or three years where I was saying like, what is this going to be? And it's when I started really ramping up and doing more PR and like doing the Today Show. And that was when everything sort of set in. But the cookbook, again, to your point, I'd never written a cookbook. How do I start? And so I started reaching out to any person that I knew who had written a book and what was the process. And someone said, you have to write a treatment. I was like, what's a treatment? You have to get an agent. I was like, how do I do, you know, I didn't know these different things. So I borrowed a friend's, treatment. It was totally different too, but it gave me the bones of understanding how to do it. And I wrote an 80 page treatment. It was basically almost 50% of what the book turned out to be, but it was great because having that treatment really was a roadmap to the book that I was writing.
1: Incredible. And I know you ended up getting, I think it was a book deal. You had to do two books in two years, which from all my friends who've written one book, it seems like such
0: a process. So how in the world was that a pretty hectic time for you? It was crazy. It was crazy because I now had two little kids and writing two books. I mean, it was Awesome because I was living it. Unlike some jobs, especially for women with children, where you're compartmentalizing, like you have your children and then you go to work, everything for me has always been everything breakfast, lunch, dinner, food in our house has never stopped. So it was really fun because I was learning. I was able to include all the education I had learned, but also learning. Kind of new tips and tricks and ideas every day. So it was constantly being with my kids and being like, oh yes, yes, yes. And then going and like writing it down. So it was awesome.
1: That's great. No, we hear a lot of that in terms of women who have families and want to still be successful. It's like, how do you create that work life integration? And it seems for you, it's a huge part of your business and who you are as a person. So it's great to see how you balance both of them.
0: Yeah. And it's as as my get older. It's interesting, the balance of trying to involve them, but letting them sort of lead the way as well.
1: Oh, that's interesting. And I'd love to go into that a bit more. So as they are a little bit older and Weelicious is more mature and you have one potato, which we'll get into in a bit, but how are you allowing them to, I guess, lead more to your point?
0: Well, I think that, look, especially when you have kids over 10, 11, 12 years old, all of a sudden there are people with their own opinions and feelings and having their likeness out in the world. So we have a very strong rule. Like for me, I don't share anything like really personal about them. I have to clear it with them before I post anything. And it really is for the most part, all like food centric unless they really want to share something else, but I want 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 to make sure that they feel it's a family business. We're a family food company, but it really is an authentic family business and everything is just true and real. and, And that's what makes it really fun. Like we do have a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. And I love that. You know, it's crazy how after 10, they do create their own opinions and you're honoring that and acknowledging them, which I think is just so important because, you know, as they grow up, they'll really lean into what gets them excited, which is really who you are as a person, right? Your own parents really motivated you to follow your dreams and have an opinion and take a leap. So I, it's beautiful to see how you're incorporating that in your own family today. Yeah. And one thing I'd love to also talk about. So you started Weelicious. You're now, very busy with both of those two cookbooks. At one point, did the meal kit business, One Potato, come to life? Because I'm sure you know, you're know you already busy. You have, I think, maybe three kids at the time, or was it
0: two and the third came with one potato? Gemma was actually born the day that we delivered the first one potato box.
1: Oh my God. So you were prepping and grinding when you were pregnant.
0: <laughs> okay. So I'll take it back, which was... So Weelicious is a very user generated content wheel. And the reason I say that is that as much as I come up with a lot of ideas, at least 50% of the audience are the ones saying like, I need this, I need that. So it was the blog. Then it was the cookbooks. They would say, "We should do stuff on TV. So I like went that direction. I need this product in the kitchen. We worked on that. So at the time I had been developing recipes for another meal company. I was seeing a few others out there, but people kept saying like, why can't there be delicious recipes to my front door? Things that I want to eat, that my kids want to eat, that's organic, all of the principles of Wheelicious, no dyes, healthy, but also really easy and real food. So I connected with my partner, Chris, he runs operations, I'm CEO of the company, and we created One Potato, which is an organic family-friendly food company, which delivers meals that take 12 to 30 minutes, everything semi-prepared, and it really is just like no matter what your family size is, no matter the way you eat, vegetarian, vegan, gluten-free, nut-free, we can can make a meal that will wow anyone.
1: I love that. And it's funny because me and my fiance were We don't have kids yet at this stage, but even thinking about what we're going to eat and we're very picky in terms of it has to be organic. It has to be good food. I'm like one potato is even perfect for us. But I always think about when you have a family, you actually have to think about food and feed this other person. You can't skip a lunch or you can't be delayed on something. (laughs) Well,
0: it's painful for parents. And I don't think that anyone when they're like, I want to have a baby realizes that it's 21 meals plus snacks. 365 days a year for 18 years. As a parent, it's the one thing you can't escape. And especially when you're co-parenting, you'll see like a lot of couples and kids and parents get into these food feuds. And we try to take a lot of that away, um, to take a lot of that stress away.
1: Absolutely. And I love your business and what you guys have created. And you know, one thing I'm always curious about, so the idea, you very much lean into your community about what you're going to do next. And meal kit services, as I'm sure you know, are very operationally intensive, right? So how did you even connect with your business partner, Chris? Because it seems like you guys were very much aligned on the mission and the idea. Was that serendipitous or did you seek out a co-founder? How did that happen? Because it seems like the perfect match.
0: Well, it's really funny because I think that the serendipitous is everything. I'm a huge believer in timing, luck, also, hard work. Chris had, he has 20 plus years of operational experience and had been having this struggle with his family, even though he loves cooking. The Wheelicious followers had been saying they wanted a company where they could get meals to their front door. And Chris's sister was actually the one who reintroduced us. We had known each other for years. And we literally sat there at a coffee shop and we created this little one sheet piece of paper, like our mission statement for the company. And we were like, all right, let's do this. And it took about almost a year and a half of planning mm. before the first box ever hit the road at my front stuff. But once it did, the feedback, even today, like our cost of acquisition is always so low because it's really... So much word of mouth.
1: Mm, That was a question I was going to ask you, you know, starting out, it's amazing that you have that Weelicious community, but what were some of the marketing tactics or what really worked for you guys in terms of the awareness when you first launched that
0: first box? I mean, look, anytime you're a new company and you don't have tons of funds, you're just like friends and family round. It's all about word of mouth. It was sending emails to anyone that we knew, anyone that had a struggle. And really, we've just been like to this day, really using the Weelicious platform to grow the business, just being able to spread the word that way. But it's also just a ton of word of mouth, especially at that point in the company. You know, today it's a little bit more, but have always been surprised that our growth has just been so much really, you know, natural.
1: That's awesome. And I think it just shows the year and a half that you guys really focused on getting the product right. Right. People focus on so many different things like too much time on branding or marketing. And it's like, get that first product right. So even your 10 customers will like what you're doing. And it seems like that's worked
0: for you. Well, and not only that, whenever you look at any kind of food company, R&D, which is research and development is a huge part of any company. We didn't ever have to do that because we had the data. So we had Google Analytics for years of the most popular delicious recipes, things that people clicked on, the user feedback through social. So we knew right out the gate the top recipes that we wanted to use, and as a company, we've always leaned into our data for any new SKU, any new meal product that we've launched. So it's user feedback and that data that are just essential.
1: That's awesome. I'm a big believer in building community. And I think it's even fun and exciting for me, whether it's with the podcast or company that I'm building. And with Weelicious, I'd love to get your thoughts on What are a few things looking back on your journey of years building community? Because you've really done an amazing job and you continue to foster that. So any tips or advice you would give women listening who want to create that in their own life and their business?
0: I think it's reaching out first and foremost, being authentic. Whatever you are creating, it has to be something that you are so passionate about. Many of my friends are female founders. And if you could let them just talk about what they're creating 24, they would just, the energy, it's impalpable. It's incredible. So be really energetic and super passionate about what you're doing. Be ready to talk about it 24 hours a day. And then when you're collecting that audience, not being scared to email any friends and family that you have and just say, will you forward this? Spread the word. Using social media, be it Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, anything to tell your story. I think that even when I've had cookbooks come out or starting Weelicious, what exists today did not even exist 10 years ago. So now I always say like pick two social media platforms. Do not try to like do six. It is never going to work. You're going to spread yourself too thin. Pick one or two that you are going to just go for it and know where your audience is on those platforms.
1: I love that. And one thing that also resonates with your story, which I think is important when you're creating content and building community is consistency. You were doing this for, you were saying two years until you really built a pretty decent community. And I'm sure you were showing up every single day without seeing the accolades of that.
0: Yeah, you have to, you have to, I think that it takes time to build community, even if it's Instagram and you're like, why does that person have 2 million views? You're like, well, if they have 10 comments, most likely it's not going to be authentic. You see the people that really have just honed their community. And like you said, posting every day or whatever you're doing, that it's consistency. If it's your newsletter, make sure that the content is really rich, but that that content is also speaking who you are, who your product is, and giving back. So you should always be also giving back to your community, sharing not just what you have, but also what others have. I'm a big believer in, even for Pinterest, if you pin one thing, you need to pin five to 10 of other brands because that's just creating more authenticity.
1: It's so true. I try to do that with the podcast featuring other women building their empires. And it just feels great to support other people because I know what they're going through. And two things that I love that you mentioned about authenticity, when you're really true to who you are, it makes it easier and people really connect with that. So I love that you've really leaned into that from day one. And I think it just makes the whole content producing process easier because it's really just who you are as a person. You don't have to make something up. And the second thing is we can all get so overwhelmed with all the different social media platforms and how you said really focus on two and do that really well, I think is important because some people don't even start because they're like, oh, well, there's TikTok and Facebook and Clubhouse and Instagram. They're like, it's too much. But to your point, picking two or even starting with one and then slowly adding the second, I think is great advice.
0: And even with the content itself, when I first started, I was teaching myself everything and I would go to Apple to take classes once a week. And I always got this same guy. And he was just like, I love what you're doing. It's so awesome. And he turned out to be a director. And we ended up working together for nine years. Wow. And he had his day job at Apple, but then he was a director. So he would shoot and cut and basically was producing content with me. So I always suggest there's so many incredible film schools, art schools, get that 16, 18, 20 year old who's looking for a side hustle job, because I guarantee there, I mean, like, look, my son is pretty incredible. This is the world they're growing up in. So it's good to get them where they're young and have great ideas.
1: Yeah. And they're hungry and eager to build their resume too and work with you. I think it's definitely a great, great point. And one thing I'd love to also get your thoughts on, you're clearly still constantly producing content, whether it's for your Instagram or your blog or business. How do you think about your schedule? Because you still are a CEO running a business, right? Operationally intensive. How do you think about the days you produce content and the days you're wearing your CEO hat and also being a mom?
0: <laughs> well, I would definitely say there's a lot of things going at once. I um, mean, <laughs> my brain capacity for holding it all. We're always thinking about when we're shooting content, how many different platforms can we get it on and utilize cross-utilization. It's just be prepared for getting up early and going to bed really late. There is no nine to five in the world that I live in, but you know what? I love it. I'm happy. And I have two daughters and they say that sometimes they're like, you work so hard, but I always tell them I'm really happy. I feel really lucky. And that to me is the most important part. So no matter, I don't even count the hours as much as I'm just focused on, eye on the prize. And believe me, I mean It's always strategies. I have notebooks. I'm looking at piles of notebooks, but I write everything down. I have lists going at all times. So whatever is your strategy for keeping it all together and never letting anything forget or slide.
1: I know. And it's still something I'm figuring out for myself, but are there certain days that you focus on content or does it just flow in terms of that?
0: Yes. To your point, we have video content shoot days. I have a very much a posting schedule. I would suggest to anyone, like always look at your analytics, no matter if you have 10 followers or 2 million or hundred million, looking at your analytics, like when is the best time for posting? And very much also, it goes the same thing for running one potato is I know the flow of the day when we're just crazy busy. So I think now I've got it down. I can't say that I did a few years ago, but now definitely we keep on a very tight schedule.
1: No, that makes me feel a little bit better because as the businesses, we haven't launched yet, but it's like figuring out your flow just takes time. So it's reassuring to just hear your perspective for sure.
0: But I think taking your time to figure it out and not beating yourself up about it and surrounding yourself with people who are there to support you, like Mm -hmm. let people support you in that area.
1: Yeah, I think that's really key. And even something I'm thinking about now, because in the beginning it's all you. And then it gets to a point where things are growing. You're like, I need help. So it's a good problem to have and a good way to think versus always just trying to do something yourself. Because I think that will just cap you from making a bigger impact in whatever you're doing. And one thing I'd love to get your thoughts on is fundraising and how you thought about it with One Potato. I know you focused. I believe it was friends and family to start, but I would love to just hear the way you thought about it and when you started to really bring in money from investors.:
0: So Welycious has always, to this day, been self-funded, so I'd never taken a penny for that. And with one potato it's a much bigger beast. So we did a friends and family round, and then we did two seed rounds. And we're actually just launched our series a so yeah, we've had a lot of growth and with growth is like wanting to launch new product lines and grow the company. So yeah, again, when we go back to that, ask anyone, ask, Everyone, you'd be surprised the people that you may know because fundraising is a definite strategy it's a learned skill and you may not be great at it, but practicing your pitch, making sure that your deck tells really the story so that someone is an investor is able to really absorb, like, tell me what you're doing. Your deck should be able to tell that story and know what you're using the funds for. You really need to be able to spell that out
1: when you guys first started, I believe you were saying before you even raised your first seed round, you kind of wanted to make sure what you guys were doing was validated. So at what point did you feel comfortable to start raising money from other people for that first seed? Were you guys selling or what stage of the business were you at when you went for that first round?
0: Yeah. So at the first round, we self-funded much of it. And it wasn't until we really got to the shipping that we needed to do the friends and family. I would say like, don't raise money until you absolutely need it to either kick off or to really grow. We definitely needed a friends and family round. And believe me, there have been very scary times. I mean, I'm the first to say there were times probably two, three years ago where we were like, I don't know if we're going to make it. We just really didn't. It was just at that time, more capital intensive and just really scary. But then when you start to be like, okay, all right, I get it. Every lesson as painful as it is, is a great lesson to learn. I feel like every day we're still learning lessons and I'm not sure that ever ends in the span of your business. The first few rounds were for growth, but also just to keep the business flow going.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that moment where you said, and I'm sure it resonates with some entrepreneurs that are listening, where you're questioning, I don't know if we can have the money to keep the lights on or continue the business. Maybe we have to pause it. What did you do at that point? Were you even more motivated to reach out to more people to fundraise? Or how did you kind of go through that difficult time period?
0: Well, look, I mean, I'll be completely honest because we're talking about this. When Blue Apron hit the stock exchange, because that is always the business that, like, There's always going to be a business when someone says, are you like X, Y, and Z? And you as an entrepreneur are like, no, we're nothing like whoever it is. But that's always what you're going to get in any kind of product because they need to be able to compare it to something. So Blue Apron had hit the stock exchange and IPO'd and it was like so exciting. And we had people like throwing money at us. And then within months, it fell off the stock exchange and mm-hmm. like a penny stock and it was trying to raise money at that time for the year after that was really really challenging so we've had to really figure out who we were independent of any kind of noise out there and i think that that's the thing that i would always suggest is just hunker down close your ears focus on what you're doing and what differentiates you because mm-hmm. i think that making sure that you are a fully differentiated product. And by the way, you as the founder could be the key differentiator. But that's something that becomes really important, especially when you're fundraising.
1: Yeah, I think that's really, really true. And being clear on what differentiates you. And I feel like that takes time, a lot of time with yourself, like you were saying, to be really focused on that. And with one potato, do you think as the company launched, even in the early days, you guys were still trying to figure out what differentiated you? Or was it a matter of being quiet and just really listening to your own intuition?
0: I think that's a great question. We've always known what differentiated us. I would say that the customer emails that we get on a daily basis of being like, I've tried every meal company out there and you guys are so different. Getting those user testimonials, I think is super key. Keep a running list of them because those are your advocates. Those are the people that really hear you and trust you. And actually one of our investors who invested twice in us sent me a message on Instagram and said, we've been using one potato. It's changed our life. Our five-year-old wouldn't eat anything and now only wants one potato. And we met with them three days later and they invested for the first time. It was incredible. So Letting investors also try your product, if that's something that's in your bandwidth, because I can't tell you how many investors I know. I'll say, why did you invest in a certain product? They're like, I bought it at the grocery, or a friend told me about it, and I loved it, because that's the excitement. So even for a while, I was only wanting investors who were parents, who really understood the stress of feeding a family, because for us, that's the pain point.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting you brought that up because last week we had Sally Krawcheck. She's the founder of Elevest. Yeah. And she was saying the seed round was easy for her to raise because of her network being in finance and the Wall Street. But she said it was really tough when I wanted to raise a Series A when I went to Sand Hill Road and met with investors who didn't really understand what I wanted to do. And she said, at some point, I was like, I have to go to investors who get my problem, who understand what my mission is. And it just goes to you, you know, whether it's parents or finding investors who either know your product and like it, or just understand the problem you're solving, because it's already so hard. So trying to educate someone who doesn't even know about what you're doing is even a hundred times harder.
0: Yeah. And I will say, like, even if you get through with your product to those investors, even if it's not a right fit for them, try not to take it personal because it's not going to work for probably 99 out of a hundred, sadly. But if they really get your product, they'll always say, you know what? I love what you're doing. I know five other people. Let me connect them Mm -hmm. to, because that's to me the best way. And also other founders, because more than anyone I've ever talked to, other founders have been the best, as I call them, super connectors to other funds, to other founders, to anything you need. Because like to your point at the very beginning, most people will give you five, 10, 15 minutes. So another tip is always have your list. If you're asking for someone's help, have five questions ready to fire because you don't want to waste anyone's time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And one thing you mentioned rejection, getting no's it's inevitable, right? I'm sure you heard people who didn't resonate with the brand. How do you move through that? Is there any one situation that really hit you harder than another? And what did you do to overcome it? Because we hear that from so many of our listeners who are dealing with rejection day to day, which is I guess part of the entrepreneurial process. So
0: we had an investor who has invested twice? At least there's the sunshine of this story. <laughs> we had talked to him many times, and he said, I have a friend who is a private chef, and I want to send him one potato. And we did, and he like pulled it apart. You know, he's a chef for no kids, only adults, but that doesn't matter either way. Just was pulling it apart, pulling it apart. And the investor was like, You know what? I don't know. I don't know. And I said, All right, now I'm going to ask you a favor give me a family who you are friends with, can I send them one potato? And then they were like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing ever to die. It's a different audience. You yeah. have to know. And I could have given up at the first one and been like, oh, deflated. But that's what you always, everyone's going to have a different opinion. You can't send a man, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to use a bad, I was going to use something <laughs> like a feminine product, let's just say, and expect for him to fully understand it because it's not the audience. So knowing who's your audience and also when you're looking for investors, if you can go online, especially when you're looking more venture capital, look at the other products that go on their websites, read about their bios. Maybe there's a connection. You went to the same college. What other companies did they invest in? Because you you don't want to be going to a venture capital firm that's only invested in tech when you're a consumer goods product.
1: Exactly. Oh my gosh. So many good gems that you were laying out right now. And one thing, and we've talked about some of the hardships that you've experienced, but with one potato, you have to source the ingredients. You guys are making everything in your own warehouse. I'm sure supply chain, even shipping the product, like you mentioned, I mean, I'm creating a food product and it's so intense. So from your perspective, is there any difficult or challenging moment in the business that you can bring up and kind of walk through how you overcame that specific challenge that comes to mind?
0: Well, I would say that I could actually get a laundry list for you, but let's figure out one. We had bought a machine that we weren't ready for and it was a fortune. And then we were like stuck with this machine that we weren't at the capacity to use yet. So we had to get really creative about what to do with it and how to sell it and then eventually to reacquire it when we were at the right stage to be using it. So I can really give you a lot of examples like looking into shipping. I mean, shipping you know, if you're in a business, like shipping is its own beast that we deal with on a regular basis. And one shipper where we saw a family had a, their video camera watching the shipping company toss the box. And we were like, Oh my God, like what happens when your beautiful product that we make absolutely every morsel homemade, nothing from a can or a box. We package it so carefully. And then a shipping company will just chuck it. So you have to, it's just every day is like a different battle here or there.
1: Yeah. And I guess there's only so much you can fix in the beginning, but I'm sure as the company grows, you're just hitting other battles and trying to just make it better and better every day. But it's so tough, I'm sure, just to kind of hit everything.
0: You know what, though? I would say 99.9% of a week is great, but it's that 1% where you're just like, oh, 0.1 weekly headaches. But we're at the point in our company right now where it feels really good.
1: Awesome. And you know, I'm sure with COVID, it's impacted everyone's business in a different way. I know for you guys, a lot of people were leaning in at home and cooking and it was a big opportunity for you. But I'd love to hear more about how the growth and just how COVID really impacted One Potato.
0: Yes. So I mean, One Potato, the key differentiator for us is that our niche business is family. So families have very predictable schedules. You know, your son has soccer, you're going to be home. Most families don't have the opportunity to go out to eat as much because it's just having kids out is like, oh you're just like staying home. But how do you feed in an easy way at home? So what COVID really did was, the habit is there, but the behavior became even more week to week. And one potato, especially during COVID, became this going out to eat experience because it's homemade. The meals are different every single day. So you're like, oh, we can have Mexican one night and Chinese another night. And like super interesting and as an activity, when COVID were all home, for us, getting kids in the kitchen, getting families cooking together, eating together. So really a lot of the emails that we've gotten in the past year is like, thank you so much for giving us just this fun, connected experience that took away like what's for dinner, especially when you didn't feel safe and you didn't know mm-hmm. what was coming into your home. So we became that much more of even a trusted brand from that standpoint.
1: I love that. And I know you've talked about this in terms of really having your kids and family part of the process of making food and how important that is in the way you raise your own children. And I think if I heard this correctly in another interview, I see so many of my friends and even sister where their kids eat different things. I'd love to hear your thought process around that. Because for me, I'm like, once I'm a mother, if I have kids and everybody's eating something differently, I'll just go crazy and flop on the floor. Like, how do you (laughs) manage that? So how do you manage that? Because I think you've done a good job with your own family and children.
0: Yeah. I mean, I always say like, I don't want to be working at the diner and be like, here's this for you. And here's this for you. like a short order cook, it doesn't really me. And I also don't like to label kids as picky eaters or by the way, picky adults. I know plenty of picky adults. So it goes both ways. So really what we've created at One Potato is it's a DIY solution. So let's say it's turkey tacos. So you cook your turkey meat. We send you all the homemade sauces, guacamole, salsa, lettuce, tortilla, everything. So that no matter what kind of eater you are, if you're on a special diet or regime, you have an allergy, Everyone in the family can make the kind of taco or burrito that makes them really satisfied, excited, and hungry.
1: You definitely make it much, much easier. And I want to shift gears a little bit and end on two questions. And one of them, what do you see as someone, as I'm sure you are mentoring or around a lot of other entrepreneurs, what would you say are some of the biggest mistakes that entrepreneurs are making, whether it's in their life or business or thought process? Well, I'd say the
0: biggest mistake is thinking that you're going to have the unicorn company that you're like, I'm going to flip this company in two years. It happens one in a million, but I think that if you're really an entrepreneur and you're super passionate about a company, you better be prepared to lean into it 24-7 for years to come. It's a lot, and you're going to be taking on, you may think that you're great at one thing, you're about to take on every hat and wear every hat, like make sure you jump in customer service, make sure you know what involves shipping and production and R&D and creating a deck and everything because it never goes away.
1: It's true. And even when you're looking to hire people on your team, it's so important for the founders to even know what they're hiring for. So you have to do the job. And I'm sure that helps. And I'm really glad you brought that up because so many have now done almost 50 interviews. And many of these women have sold their businesses for hundreds of millions of dollars. And a key theme is they've all been doing it for a long time, right? Like success does not happen overnight. Like you mentioned, some of them are nine years, 10 years, 15 years. And I think to your point, you just have to get ready for that and really love the process because it could take that long to build that massive company if it's what you want to do, of course. So I'm glad you <laughs> definitely brought that up.
0: <laughs> Likely, if that's what you want to do, are you sure? I mean, yeah, even for us now, like we merged Weelicious and One Potato into one 360 degree family food company. But Weelicious was much more of like a mom and pop. So it's deciding that you really want to take it to the next level.
1: Exactly. And if you want to go there. So that's really exciting. I can't wait to see what's next for the brand and company. One question I love to close with all of our guests is wealth means so much more than money, and everybody has their own definition of wealth. So at this stage in your life, what does the word wealth mean to you?
0: At this stage in my life, wealth means. Every day is totally fulfilling. It means that for me, like I think we started talking about, I'm a sponge. I want to learn, 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 and then put that knowledge to use. And I want to end every day feeling accomplished and really connected And feeling good because we're a family company. So if my family isn't taken care of and satisfied and feeling happy, then I'm not going to feel that way either.
1: Yeah, I love that. And thank you, Catherine, for joining us today and showing up as your authentic self. I'm so excited for our listeners to try one potato. We'll put all those info and details in the show notes. So thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you, Yasmeen.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even better, sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on our new episodes or join our private community, go to BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. And if you have any feedback or just want to say hi, reach out to me on Instagram at Yasmin K. Nori, or feel free to email me at Yasmin at BehindHerEmpire.com. Before we wrap up, I want to take a moment to acknowledge this incredible community of women listening. There are so many of you that are working incredibly hard to build your own empire, and I want to celebrate your success. So occasionally, at the end of our episodes, I'll be highlighting an inspiring story from one of our community members. Let's listen in to this week's featured entrepreneur.
2: My name is Nilu Marani, and I am the founder of Nilufar. Nilufar is the maker of Persian snacks inspired by my own family recipes, and our products include Persian trail mix and Persian style almonds. I started the business about four years ago with the goal of introducing my Persian culture to others through food. I've always thought that food is a great way of learning about a culture, but Persian food is actually very unknown to most people in the US and it's not accessible. So I think people are missing out on such a unique, delicious cuisine, one that I grew up with and one that everyone I've ever introduced it to just absolutely loves it. So my mission is to introduce Persian food to more households and hopefully as a side effect of that, also introduce Persian culture. So I started the company about four years ago as a side hustle. And actually, I'm still working full-time. So technically, it is still a side hustle. Balancing a startup with a full-time job is definitely not easy. I'm not going to sugarcoat that one. You have to be pretty good at mental compartmentalizing and time management. You have to turn your brain on and off a lot, basically. And Google Calendar is definitely my best friend. But you know, if you work for a company that's supportive, like luckily I did, it's very feasible. And I would say transparency is really key here. If I had tried to hide it or keep it under wraps, I I could have never done this. Your business becomes a huge part of you. So yeah, I would recommend being as transparent as possible. But building the business in the way that I did as a side hustle, did allow me to grow it at a speed that I was really comfortable with. And also without needing investors or outside funding, which for me, bootstrapping was a big priority. So I honestly wouldn't change the route even if I could. And if you're in a similar situation and you really want to start a company, but maybe you're a little more risk averse or you need a little bit of stability, my advice is, to go for it, it's honestly easier than you think it's going to be. It's very feasible. I've been doing it for four years, but just start one step at a time. So, I uh, started my company by literally making samples of my traditional Persian trail mix and giving it to coworkers and getting feedback. That was my early market research. Then I did a logo. Um, actually, had a friend of mine do a logo for me, and he did my packaging and. Then I found a retail account. It was a small juice bar in my hometown, literally going step by step. And at the time, I didn't realize my business would be growing to the stage that it is. But I just knew I was passionate about it. And I wanted to start it. And I just said, step by step. So I would say, don't be intimidated by these food brands or any type of brand that They get all this funding pre-launch and they launch and they have like huge distribution in year one because they've got all these brokers and and whatnot. Don't be intimidated by that because that is not everyone's path. If your product is good, it will stand the test of time and you can do it in the way that you need to do it. So go for it. And if you want to find my products, you can find them on my website, nilufarmix.com. We do sell on our website. We also sell on Amazon. If you're in LA, we're at Erewhon. If you're in Chicago, we're at Whole Foods. And on my website, we have a retail product locator where you can find the retailer closest to you. So thank you so much. I appreciate it.